Good evening to each one. Looking forward to getting into uh, our presentation, number 21, the final phase of the judgment. And we are going to need an extra outpouring of the Holy Spirit of the Lord as we get into this presentation. So if you will, uh, I'd like to invite you to join me as we kneel. Father in heaven, we are again very thankful for the opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. And Lord, we're, we're grateful for um, the Holy Spirit that interprets your word for us and we are asking for a special outpouring of your spirit. And Lord, each time I come up here, I am just asking that this instrument will not get in the way of what you are wanting to do, but rather, Lord, that... Um, you will be able to express your mind that will be given to me. You know who is in the audience uh, here right now, those who are listening, and those who will listen in the future, who will watch this in the future. And so we just pray that you'll give something to each one. We thank you for this uh, and praise you, and we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, we're getting into presentation Number 21, the final phase of the judgment, the punishment of the wicked. Let's begin with uh, a review. Um, we see some folks coming in. I don't know if we have any more handouts. If we do, okay, good. Um, let's begin with uh, a review. We are, we're learning that the sanctuary reveals God's plan to save a fallen world. And uh, it's my joy to share this with you because I have been wanting to understand this and I, it's just laid out the simplest in the sanctuary. Um, we are learning right now, we, ha we have gone through the process and we're just spending time now in the most holy place and more specifically the day of atonement which is the day of judgment and we have learned that the judgment... Uh, uh, comes in three phases. Phase one is the investigative uh, judgment, and, uh, and yesterday we studied phase two, and that was our last presentation, and it was on the thousand years, also known as the millennium. And uh, we learned a number of things uh, regarding the thousand years in our study yesterday. We learned that the starting point begins at the second coming, and at that time, the wicked will be destroyed. Maybe I'll stand on this side. The wicked will be um, destroyed by his coming. The righteous living will be changed. The righteous dead will be resurrected. Uh, they'll all be raptured, raptured, and that means taken up to meet the Lord in the air, and then I'll go to heaven. Then during the thousand years, we learn that the saints will be in heaven engaged in judgment with Jesus. We learn that Satan and his angels are bound on earth and that the counterpart to that is when uh, the high priest places the sins of the people on Azazel and he, the goat and set out into the wilderness, a place uninhabited by people. That's during that period. That's the play out. This is the antitype. And, the, and during that time, the wicked, of course, are all dead. Then at the end of the thousand years, uh, Jesus returns with the saints. The wicked are resurrected. The New Jerusalem comes down and is attacked. Uh, at, uh, and and the, before the attack can actually get underway, they're arrested uh, by the presence of Jesus on the white throne judgment. 
and the wicked are judged and finally destroyed, and then God creates, recreates a new earth. And we just kind of went through it quickly, but that is an overview of what we studied last night. So tonight we're going to focus in on phase three of the judgment, which will be uh, the executive portion of the judgment when the wicked are uh, finally destroyed. And uh, we're going to seek to answer three questions tonight. When does this destruction take place? Where does this take place and how long? And really what we're going to be studying about tonight is hell, hellfire. And uh, we know the popular teaching uh, today uh, in the Christian world that when someone dies, that uh, if they were a bad person, they go to hell and there they burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Is that a biblical teaching? That's the question that we have to look at tonight. So why don't we begin uh, in question number one. Question number one really does just kind of tip us off as to where all this is going. If, if we really listen to what the text is saying and believe what the te- text is saying. So let's take a look. So what two cities are given as an example of the destruction of the wicked? And in 2 Peter 2, 6, it says, And turning the cities of what? Sodom and Gomorrah into what? Ashes. Now watch carefully what the text says. Condemned them to destruction, making them a what? An example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah reveals to us two things. It's a warning for the wicked that they will be destroyed. That's what it's about. And more specifically, the Bible goes so far as to say that those two cities were turned into ashes. And uh, here, then, is really the framework of what should be our understanding of what's going to happen to the wicked in the end. You know, let me pause right here. You know, I, I, I get caught up in this. I really want to say the saved and the lost, though the Bible uses the expression wicked and the righteous, right? But you know, friends, without Jesus Christ, we're all wicked. Isn't that true? Every last one of us. And the only thing that makes a difference is Christ, His blood, and His righteousness. So I say the wicked and the righteous, uh, I, I feel more comfortable saying the saved and the lost, because if not for Christ, we're all in the same boat. Isn't that true? Absolutely true. Anyway, you'll still hear me do that along the way. But anyway, the bottom line is, is this text, uh, the Apostle Peter is, is communicating to us that the destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of what's going to happen to the wicked or the lost in the end. They will be destroyed, turned to ashes. That's what's being communicated. But let's continue to flush this out. When will the wicked be destroyed in hellfire? And you know the teaching today? That is a bad person, as soon as they die, they go straight to uh, H-E double hockey sticks, as a friend of mine used to say, or straight to hell. Uh, But let's see what the Bible has to say regarding this. Um, John 12, 48. The word that I have spoken will judge them in the what? In the last Day, And we're finding that judgment is a process. You have the investigative, you have the sentencing, then you have the executive. And when does that take place? At the last day. Let's open our Bibles. Let's just take a look at that real quick. We were looking uh, yesterday uh, in our last presentation on Revelation 20. Um, and uh, in regards to the millennium and what happens at the end of the millennium, And uh, let's take a look here 
and see what the Word of God has to tell us. Revelation 20, if you're there, say amen. If you need more time, mercy. And, um, oh, I heard mercy. I'll give you a little bit more time. It's okay. Revelation 20. And I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 there at the very end of 20. It says, And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is an event that happens at the end of time. Not at death. Very, very important. That is the Bible uh, testimony. Let's take a look at 2 Peter 2.9. And the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the what? The day of, of judgment. Yeah. Uh, so again, we're referring to that executive portion at the end in Matthew uh, 13, 40 and 42. says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned into the fire, so will it be when? At the end of the age, if you have a King James Version, it's at the end of the world. That's the testimony that the Bible gives. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather those who practice lawlessness, and will what? Cast, thank you, cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So when then do the wicked finally get destroyed by fire? At the end, on the last day. That's when it takes place. That's the Bible consistent testimony. Let's take a look at question number three. If the wicked who have died are not in hell yet, then where are they? Well, John 5, 28 and 29, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming which all who are in the what? Graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Condemnation. And so we studied about that yesterday that the the millennium is, uh, the bookends of the millennium are two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the righteous that takes place at the coming of Jesus and, uh, and that marks the beginning of the millennium. Then there's the resurrection of the wicked or the lost which takes place at the end of the millennium. And um, so in the meanwhile, the wicked are in the graves. No passage of time. They are waiting. Job 21, 30 and 32. For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. See, they're waiting. I mean, not consciously, obviously. But they are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be what? Brought out on the day of wrath, yet he shall be brought to the grave. And that second time to the grave is going to be the second death and we have already referred to that in our last presentation. So he's reserved. Right now, the wicked are not being destroyed or, 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 or are eternally burning. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Take a look at question now, number four. What is the reward or punishment of sin? Now, this is one that is really going to require thinking caps. Um, trying to think of an illustration here that won't get me into trouble. You know, sometimes you can look at something and look, okay, this is a good one. I, um, one of the ways that we save money as a family <laughs> is uh, when we need a vehicle, I go to the insurance auction and uh, buy a vehicle that's been totaled, not too bad, 
right now you can just look at a car long enough and they'll total it. But anyway, and, uh, and then I bring it home and then I piece it together. And one of the things I do as soon as I get home is I get out a notebook and pencil and I do inventory to the car and every little tiny thing that I see wrong, I write it down and then later over a period of time, I repair it. The reason I do that is because if I don't do that, after a while, I'll, I'll get used to what the car looks like and I won't see those problems anymore. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And you know, uh, when studying the Bible, if you grow up looking at something a certain way, after a while, you, it's hard to see it a different way if the first way we were looking at it was wrong. Have any of you had that experience? Yeah, we all have. And um, so... Let's take a look at a text that's very f- familiar to us, but we got to think carefully of what it's saying. Paul's, uh, uh, Paul writes to us here, to the Romans. He says in Romans 6.23, he talks about the reward of the punishment of sin. He says, for the wages of sin is what? It is death. Uh, what is the opposite of death? That's, what, that's the opposite of death. The wages of sin is death. The opposite of death is life. So if somebody is thrown into hell to burn forever and ever, they would have life. It would be a lousy one. Does that make sense? But they would have it. The Bible doesn't say that the wages of sin is everlasting fire in hell. It says the wages of sin is death. Are we seeing a consistent uh, testimony here? Okay. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Back to Genesis where all this started. Um, And probably let's go to Genesis chapter 3. You know, I'm so thankful that it's the job of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. And he knows just how to do it. Our job is only to bear witness to the truth. It's his job to bring conviction. Isn't that true? Isn't that wonderful? Sometimes we try to do the Holy Spirit's job, but that's not our job. Our job is to bear witness to the truth. Okay, so you know the story. It's the story of the fall. And um, we're here, you know, Satan asks, uh, Satan, this form of the servant, uh, a serpent, if we look at verse uh, one, he, he asks Eve a question. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And then she responds, um, in verse 3, he says, but the, she says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, you shall uh, not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay? So, um, eating the fruit results in death, right? Of course, the devil says, you're not going to die. That's the, uh, the next verse there. You shall not surely die. But now take a look. Uh, of course, you know, then the verses that follow is the fall of man, then uh, judgment pronounced on man and on uh, the serpent, of course, Satan. But uh, then God has to take action in verse 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, man has become like one of us uh, to know good and evil, and now least he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and do what? They were sent out so that they would not live forever. They are not immortal. If they had, can you imagine being in a sinful state forever? Well, you want to talk about hell. That would have been horrific. No, God is too merciful and loving for that. He did not allow that. So, so man, and we've studied that already in our last presentation, is not immortal. We're just fleshing that out 
a little more because if you live forever in the fires of hell, you would be immortal. Let's take a look now. Question number five. What are the only two choices for all men? John 3.16. What whoever believes, oh, excuse me, that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So they're contrasted. Perishing and everlasting life. Now, if you don't know what perishing looks like, put yummy food in front of a teenager. It's not going to be there very long. It's gone. Perishing means gone, done. That's what it means. And so perishing is the opposite of everlasting life. Everlasting torment would be everlasting, eternal, immortal. But that's not the the picture that God paints. So where does this all come from? It really comes from uh, the Greek culture, uh, pagan culture, that made it, this this teaching made its way into the... um, the church, but, um, but it, it, it actually impacted Israel uh, as well. Uh, you know, it, when we studied Daniel chapter 2, we talked about the rise and falls of nations, right? And one of those nations that dominated the world was Greece. And uh, the Grecian culture actually uh, really had a powerful effect and a transforming effect on the nations that it conquered. In fact, historians will tell you that Rome, the military might of Rome, conquered Greece, but Grecian culture conquered Rome. And even today in the West, the Grecian culture is very much felt in, the area, in our world, in the area of entertainment, music, education, the arts. Uh, much of that comes from, uh, to, from Greece. Now, when the Lord Jesus, uh, if you will, open your Bibles to the, Luke, the book of Luke, the Lord Jesus had a real problem with uh, his people. His, uh, his people were uh, given the truths of the word to share it with the world and to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah, but instead they turned the truth into a club. And uh, they viewed themselves as the uh, religious elite that, would, that, that are saved and the, and the Gentiles as being all lost. And Jesus was trying to communicate to them that's really not how it works, <laughs> And he tried it in different ways. And this was one of the ways that he tried to communicate this fact to the religious leaders in a parable of Lazarus. And it's this parable that many turn to to teach the ever-eterning fires of hell. But we're already seeing that the Bible doesn't teach that. What Jesus was using was a very common uh, uh, imagery, Greek imagery, um, illustration to illustrate what he was trying to communicate. So let's take a look at this. Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And then what I'm going to do is go through it really, really quick and then expound upon it a little bit. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sore. So this is a pretty pathetic picture. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, that's Greek, by the way. Hades is a Greek word. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. 
Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between you, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot. By the way, who would want to? Not me. Nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let, uh, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, the one raised from the dead. And so <clears throat> Jesus was comparing the, the, the nation of Israel as the rich man. They were given the truths. They had the data. They had the books. And he's comparing Lazarus to the Gentiles, which did not have it. And Jesus was communicating to them that though you have the data, you didn't avail yourselves of the data. You didn't allow the data to transform your life to impact you. They had the information, but they had no connection with God, no yielded, surrendered life. They weren't seeking a righteousness outside of themselves. They were content with their own and saw no need of God. They were rich, increased in goods, and needed nothing. And, uh, and so the Gentiles who did not have access to this data, the gospel would go to them and they were going to go into heaven while the people of God, content in their own self-righteousness, was going to be lost. That is what Christ was trying to communicate by using an illustration that would have been common knowledge to them. Now, there are some that say that Jesus, no, 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 he was literally teaching a truth that you go straight to hell when you die and people go straight to heaven, really. Okay, then let's use that uh, approach to this story and see the problems we run into if we make this literal. Are you ready? Let's go back and review it. Okay. Um, so it mentions the fact... So, of verse 20, so it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Let's stop there for a moment. Does the Bible teach that when we die, we're going to all go to Abraham's bosom? No. Is that what the Bible teaches? He would have to have a really big bosom to get everybody there. Is that true? So, we just got to think of this logically if we're going to take this uh, literally. Okay, so in verse 23, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. Okay. So supposedly this is taking place in the bowels of the earth and Abraham is in heaven somewhere. So can you really see heaven from the bowels of the earth? No. Um, verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. By the way, are you noticing this conversation between the two of them are kind of, it's really calm. It's, it's very rational. The guy is in, is in fire. He's on fire. And he's having this conversation with Abraham. Have you ever burned I don't see you guys raising your hand. You have not been burned. Uh, anyway, Lazarus, that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, and torment, uh, uh, for I am tormented in the flames. Um, so, so here he's having this calm conversation, 
And he's asking for Abraham. He's on fire, okay? He's just totally in flames. And he's asking Abraham to dip, or, or Lazarus to dip his finger in water and then put a drop of water on his tongue to cool him off. You know, when I was uh, growing up in Southern California, we had an old house, and, and we had a, our heat was a furnace on the floor. Have any of you ever seen furnace, the floor furnaces? Okay. You know, I had that metal grate and the whole deal. And uh, that's how we grew up. And <clears throat> I was sleeping in a, in a sleeping bag, one of those nylon deals. I was in the living room. I don't know. Must have fallen asleep watching something. And uh, anyway, this thing was on, and uh, I go to sleep, and without realizing, I roll over onto that furnace. And so I still remember waking up. It looked like a mushroom cloud, like an atomic blast is what it looked like. I saw this flame going up, and uh, the sleeping bag had caught fire. And you know what nylon does when it catches fire, right? It melts and it shrinks. So this thing wrapped around my ankles, and I'm trying to get out of my sleeping bag, and I'm caught. This thing was burning my socks off. It actually did. From my ankles down, my socks were gone. And I couldn't get out, so I'm trying to put the fire out with my hand because I can't get out. And so anyway, long story, I ended up with all kinds of blisters on my feet and on my hands. Now, my sister was in her bedroom, and right out her door, she had a perfect shot of all the commotion and, and the flames and me trying to put this thing out. She said I looked like, I don't know if you remember those little black and white, um, uh, what do they call that, uh, soundless uh, um, uh, keystone cop type of things. And when they're moving really fast, she said that that's what I looked like, actually. <laughs> she said I was moving really fast. Well, I bet I was. You know, at that moment, as I'm battling the flames and my, my, my socks are burning off and my hands are, I got burning plastic on my hand. And my sister had walked up with a drop of water on her tongue saying, George, stick your tongue out. I want to help you out. I would not have been very pleased with my sister. Are you with me? A drop of water while you're on fire isn't going to do much good. No, my friends, this is not an, a, an actual event. This is not something to be taken literal. God was, Jesus was using an illustration that the people of his day would have connected with. And then take a look at verse 31. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one raised from the dead. And you'll recall that later, a friend of Jesus named Lazarus was resurrected and they still would not accept Christ as the Lord of glory. They still wouldn't do it. And later on, when after Christ's crucifixion and death, the gospel, uh, whereas Israel was viewed at that time as the people of God and the representative of God, that is transferred over to the Christian church and they now become the visible uh, representatives of God. Does that make sense? And that's really what is happening in this text. Let's take a look <clears throat> at question number six. What will happen to the wicked in hellfire? Let's continue and look at the Bible testimony. Psalms 37, 10, and 20 says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be what? No more, right? That's an, another word for that would be perish. But the wicked shall, there's the word, uh-huh, very good, into, sm into smoke, and they shall what? Vanish away. Malachi 4, uh, 1 and 3 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. All who will do wickedly will be stubble, and the day 
which is coming shall what? Burn them up. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be what? Ashes under your, the soles of your feet. And remember, in our earlier text, um, the destruction of the wicked is compared to the destruction of Sodom of Gomorrah, which was turned to ashes. By the way, the, 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 from what we understand, that was a very beautiful tropical area. And when it was destroyed, it is desolate. I mean, there is like nothing there growing. <laughs> it was just wiped out. In fact, there are sulfur balls, from what I understand. And people say if you stick a match to it, they'll burn. Still. Really interesting. I have a pastor friend of mine that went over there and had that uh, opportunity to do that. So here, so far, the Bible testimony regarding what happens to the wicked in their destruction uses words like vanish, burn up, ashes, and perish. I can't help but think of the words of Jesus who said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is a horrible teaching. What a terrible picture this, ha this, this place is of God. You know, this teaching has turned a lot of people away from God. A whole bunch of people away from God. And you know, that's sad. But to me, what I find more strange is that it hasn't turned, is that is people that are okay with that teaching. That to me is strange, uh, if not alarming. Um, but it's a terrible picture of God. Do you realize Hitler didn't even do this to people? He could not eternally burn somebody up. He, did, he didn't do that. And yet, um, we, we put this picture on God. So, you know, so here's a guy. Let's say you have a neighbor. His name is, is Sam. And, uh, and Sam has no interest in religious stuff. But Sam, he doesn't, he doesn't want the Lord as a Savior. But, but Sam's a nice guy. He's a nice neighbor. He mows your lawn when you're on vacation. He even feeds your dog. And uh, he's a good citizen. And then at age 36, he gets into a car accident and dies. And now it's just to punish him for eternity? For 165 billion years, and that's only the beginning, and keep going for 36 years of life that he lived? That's just. That is That is frightening, my friends. It's, there's something very terrible about that. What, a, what an awful picture uh, this has of God. And you know, many people have lost their minds over this because they couldn't reconcile it. There was no way out. And they've actually lost their minds over this. I remember one time I was, uh, I did a, when I first gave my life to the Lord, um, I was working at um, a mortgage institution, First Union Mortgage uh, there in, um, in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, the, 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 the administration there allowed us to have a Bible study during our lunch hour once a week. It was really awesome. And, and so the students wanted to know about what happens when you die, what happens to the loss. And so we studied about the Bible's testimony on, on hellfire. And <laughs> the Bible testimony is really clear that, that, that the lost will not be burning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Well, anyway, word got out what we were studying. And uh, I was done, I was back to work, and uh, I was over at the copier, and there was a lady there who was a pastor. She was, uh, uh, that's where she got her schooling. She wasn't pastoring at the time, she was working at First Union, but she found out about it, and boy howdy, she cornered me at the Xerox machine. And, uh, and she unloaded on me. She was telling me all the reasons why this is a very important teaching, and why what I was doing was awful and bad and terrible, and I was new, and I was just like... <laughs> being pelted, and I tried explaining to her, and Moa, she didn't want to hear it, and she was just blasting me. And so, um, 
So here's the Xerox machine, here's the gal, and I'm being blasted, and right behind me was a cubicle, and I'm, and, and, and so here's the end of the cubicle, and the gal that was working at the cubicle was there, and I'm, I'm here, <laughs> uh, coming under heavy fire. And meanwhile, on the other side was this gal that was very, very sweet, very calm lady, very quiet, and she was from the Advent Christian Church, if that sounds familiar to you. And the Advent Christians have the same understanding of, of, of the Bible teaching of, of the destruction of the wicked. It's not eternally burning. And uh, this precious lady heard what was going on. So I'm standing there as, as I've, I'm, I'm you know, coming under fire from this, this gal, and I won't mention what denomination she was from, it doesn't matter. And, uh, and I had my hand behind my back, and all of a sudden I feel a piece of paper in my hand. And I was like... And when I looked, she had written down all these Bible texts that disprove eternal burning hell. So I looked at the, at the lady that was blasting me. I was like, yeah, but in Peter, and I started returning fire on this lady. And uh, that was such an awesome experience. I love that story. But, uh, but many have lost their minds. No, it's not eternal burning that, uh, just of an individual. That's terrible. Uh, also, let's take a look now at question number seven, and we're going to deal here with the location. Where will hellfire be located? And you know, in the teachings today, it's somewhere in the deep, uh, dark resource, uh, you know, recesses of the earth, and the devil's there flipping people over, right? Uh, making sure that they're being burned evenly on both sides. Uh, but let's see what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> Revelation 20, verse 9. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. We studied this in our last presentation. And what came down? Fire came down from God of heaven and what? Devoured them. Was, does this event take place down in the deep bowels of the earth or on the surface of the earth? It's on the surface. That is what the Bible teaches. It does not teach uh, in the deep. So where do we get this from? We get this from the Greek culture. You know, during the Dark Ages, when the Word of God was hidden away, paganism began to make its inroads into the church. We talked about this. And, um, and, and in Greek mythology, you have the god Pluto, who is in the deep bowels of the earth, flipping people over uh, in the fires to make sure they're getting even on both sides. And when it came into uh, the church, this pagan belief and teaching, it got Christianized, and instead of Pluto doing this, they gave it the job to the devil. By the way, if God was sending people down to, to hell to be burned forever, and then the devil is there flipping them over, who's the devil working for? Has anybody put any thought into this? This is crazy. No, this is not a biblical teaching, my friends. Let's take a look at question number eight. Will the devil be in charge of hellfire? Hmm. Leviticus 20.10, and the devil who deceived them was what? Cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. No, my friends, the devil is not working for God. He is going to burn. He will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Um, you know, it's really interesting. When I got my master's, um, one of the things we studied was this very teaching. And many of the um, scholars from the Sunday the Keeping World who, who, uh, who teach the teaching of eternal burning hell have already reached the conclusion that that's not a biblical teaching. 
but it's not making its way down to the masses. It was very interesting to find that. And one of the reasons being is that this is used as a form of motivation to go to church. My friends, if the love, if love for Jesus doesn't motivate you to go to church, fear is a poor motivator. Fear, you know, when I was a kid, I was, I was bullied. I was really laid back, just a, a laid back kid. And um, <clears throat> I was a bully target. I went to public school and the bullies would just find me out and they would beat me up and take my stuff. And there came a point, I lived in fear, and there came a point where I decided I wasn't going to live like that anymore. I would rather duke it out and get beat up than to live in fear. And so I took on anybody and as many as they were. I, I just was not going to live in fear. And by the way, um, and by the way, I don't advocate violence. I didn't know Christ in those days. But, you know, when I see the events happening in the world, if your eye is on Jesus and your faith is on Jesus, you will not live in fear. Fear is not of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Are you with me? It's not of God. In fact, um, I remember, uh, well, it's a different saying. But let, me, let, me, let me go back to this. So I have you in eight. Um, so anyway, it's often used as a fear tactic to get people to come to church. Instead of drawing them by the love of Christ is, the, is this fear tactic. How many of you are uh, familiar with uh, Hell's Gate, Heaven's Let's see, Hell's Gate, Heaven's Fire. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, okay, so you know where this is going. <laughs> okay, so this is a, a well-intentioned uh, program that takes place during, the ho- during Halloween. And so parents that don't want their kids involved in Halloween type of stuff um, will, will, will have this program called Hell's Gate, Heaven's Fire. And what it is, is typically they try to find a building on two floors, with two floors. And on the upper floor, they try to portray heaven. And, you know, the air conditioning is really going on up there. It's nice and cold. And, and there's music and there's clouds and, uh, and, and, you know, just real, real friendly people. And so they take the kids to there. You know, this is what heaven's going to be like. They try to make it as heaven as possible, right? And then when they're done, they go, okay, let's go downstairs. And then they take them downstairs and the air conditioning is not working down there. And... Um, and so they have these scenes of flames and fire and people screaming, blood-curdling screams. And they're trying to portray the lost being burned forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Okay, so the kids are watching this wide-eyed. Then they take them after that into another room and then they, uh, they make an appeal. How many of you want to give your life to Jesus and not go to hell? Well, there's this the stampede. <laughs> and, uh, but it's not based on love for Christ. It's based on fear. And a friend of ours, in fact, it was... Uh, a friend of my wife's who came to spend some time with us in our home, I think at the time we were living in Tennessee, she was sharing how excited she was that her church was putting on this program. <laughs> and I was just watching, and she could tell by the look on my face that I wasn't really excited as she was. And uh, so finally I said to her, I said, honey, I said, why are those kids giving their lives to Christ? Is it because they love Jesus because of the sacrifice Christ made on their behalf because he risked eternal loss for them? Why? I said, because, and she says, well, because they're afraid. I said, they're downright terrified. That's why, and I said, she had a little boy. She had a beautiful relationship, she and her son. And I said, you know, how would you feel if you discovered that your son was, was just serving you out of fear and not love? Would that satisfy you? Would you be content with that? And she just looked at me, and I can tell that the wheels were turning. No, my friends, it is out of love that we serve our Savior. It's not out of fear.
Okay, I left you an eight. You know, if you want to read a book, this is written by a man who really struggled to understand this journey on, on, on Hellfire. I think his first name was Richard. Last name was Fudge. I'm sure some of you won't forget that. But Richard Fudge, and it's entitled The Fire That Consumes. And so you can write that down, look it up, Amazon, I'm sure you can find it. The Fire That Consumes a Man on His Journey to Understand this Very Sensitive uh, Subject. Question number nine. <clears throat> are both the soul and body destroyed in hell. And we kind of just talked about already uh, about uh, the, the eternal uh, mortal soul, which doesn't ex- exist in Scripture. Uh, the, the soul doesn't become, the person doesn't become immortal until when? Do you remember, students? When was the Bible in our study yesterday? At, at the second coming, resurrection. You got it. Okay, well, let's take a look at Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy, oh, excuse me, able to what? Destroy both soul and body in hell. And we remember that uh, Ezekiel 18, 4, and 20 in our presentation, in our last presentation, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. It dies. Take a look at question number 10. When the fire has done its work, how much will be left? Malachi 4.1 says, The day which is coming shall what? Burn them up that will leave them neither root nor branch. And so the devil is the root and his servants, his followers, are the branches. You see, the, the, the point of the plan of salvation is not only to save the fallen race, but it's to bring an end to sin. And if God were to uh, throw lost people into hellfire and then produce a miracle to keep them alive for all eternity, would sin ever end? No, it would not. And what do you think those guys burning up would be saying? You think they'd be saying nice things? (laughs) It would be horrific stuff coming out of their mouths. And God then would be responsible for perpetuating evil. No. No. That's not going to happen. Question number 11. For whom will hellfire be kindled? This is interesting and rather sad. Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the what? For the devil and his angels. The fires of hell were never intended for the human race. The human race was never supposed to experience that. The, the devil and his angels rebelled in heaven. They rebelled in the face of all the evidence that God was loved. There was nothing more that could be done for them. But humanity, Christ came to give man an opportunity to know who God is. When Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't in the face of all the evidence that the devil and the angels had. So humanity was given a chance. And, and that's why I encourage people, just give God a try. You risk nothing by giving him a try. You'll find that he is love and that he is really, totally, and completely worth it. But that word everlasting is in reference to the effect, not of uh, the process. Take a look. Uh, if you, if you want to see that clarified a little more, open your Bibles. Um, Matthew 25. This is the... Here, let me turn there. Matthew chapter 25, the parable um, of the, uh, the sheep and the goats. 
And um, so we read just now verse 41. It says, everlasting fire prepared for the devil. But watch it expounded upon in verse 46. It says, and these will go away into everlasting. Now, what's the next word? Is it punishing or punishment? It's talking about the result of that fire. But the righteous, it's contrasted with them having eternal what? Life. If you're thrown in the fire forever and ever and ever, it is eternal life. (laughs) But that's not at all what's going to happen. Let's take a look at question number 12. How does the Bible refer to God's destruction of the wicked? Isaiah 28, 21. The Lord shall be wroth that he may do his work. His what work? Strange work. And bring to pass his act. His what? His strange act. He's got to do what he has to do. But it's not something he enjoys doing. How many here have ever had to put down a pet? Is it because you didn't like your pet anymore? No, it was because your pet had reached the place that there was nothing more you can do for your pet and it was suffering. So the last act of love for your pet is to put him down. That's the last. And so individuals who reject Christ for being Lord over them, guess who they have, guess who they have chosen by default to be Lord over them? Is the prince of darkness. It's the devil. And that is a lousy existence, an awful existence. And so their destruction at the end is actually mercy. Look at the note right below 12. God can't stand the thought of even one soul being lost. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is constantly saying to them, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die? Ezekiel 33, 11. God is the friend of what? Of sinners. And leaves nothing out of his efforts to save people. Before those who rejected his offer of life are destroyed, every lost person will understand and admit that God had done all he could to save them. Their being lost was their own what? Choice. Their own choice. Number 13. Doesn't the Bible phrase unquestionable fire indicate that fire never goes out? Well, that's... You know, you can probably be led to that understanding. Isn't that true? But what happens is that we have to study the Bible to understand. Isn't that true? Here a little, there a little. We have to study deeply. We have to enter into the mind of the Hebrew writer. So let's take a look at Matthew 3.12. It says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with what kind of fire? Isn't that interesting? You ever seen chaff? Chaff will burn pretty fast. It'll burn up fast. So it has to, it'll, he's going to burn up with unquenchable fire. That seems to be a contradiction. What is going on there? You know, for a fire to take place, you need three things. You need fuel, flame, and oxygen. Isn't that true? And a fire will go and go and go and go until one of those three things are gone. When one of those three things are gone, the fire is out. As long as those three things are present, the fire will continue on and on. So what what the text is saying is that no one is going to be able to put that fire out until it's done its job. 
So let's look at an example of that. Open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. And uh, let's see an example of that. Jeremiah chapter 17. The prophet Jeremiah began his career as the prophet uh, spokesman for the Lord when he was young. Uh, 17, Jeremiah 17. I won't give you the verse yet because then you'll start reading and you won't hear me, <laughs> students. Uh, and, and so his job was to warn Israel of the approach of Babylon. And uh, the reason being is because Israel was in a state of apostasy. They were saying, oh, we're God's people. Meanwhile, they were living like sinners. They were living, <laughs> they're totally like pagans. They were not, uh, they had mixed truth with error. And, uh, and so God, and, and, and really what happens, you know, the Bible says that whoever you serve, that is your master, right? And so God has no judicial right to bless and protect them when they're serving another master. So God sends them the prophet to warn them from the, 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 their path of destruction that they're on. And, uh, and here's part of the warning in, Matthew, in Jeremiah 17, verse 27. It says, but if you heed, if you will not heed me in hallowing the Sabbath. So they were totally, they, they were blowing off God, the, the, the fourth commandment. Uh, Such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palace of Jerusalem and it shall not be what? So what kind of fire is that? Unquenchable fire, right? Okay, so this was the warning. This was the prophecy. Well, that prophecy was fulfilled. Let's back up here to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, so we're going back, uh, and that comes after First and Second Kings. Second Chronicles, verse 30, or chapter 36. Are you there? I'm going to give you a little time. It takes a while to find Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Are you there? Okay, and I'm going to read verse 19 and verse 21. And they turned, and they, and they, what's the next word? They burned. They burned the house of God. So the Babylonians came, and they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with what? Fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And then verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of who? Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So what we're finding is that the prophecy of Jeremiah and the unquenchable fire was fulfilled. But let me ask you a question. Is that fire burning today? 
No, it isn't. But it did its job. In other words, if you had the top firefighting crew in America today transported them back into time Jerusalem when these fires were going and they put all their chemicals in water and the helicopters came and dropped it, guess what? It would not have gone out. It was a judgment. That fire wasn't going to go out until it did its job. That's the point. And then when everything was burned up, it went out. Very, very important. Let's take a look now. Question 14. Does the phrase everlasting fire mean unending? Jude 7, it says, as Sodom and Gomorrah are set forth as what? We looked at this verse earlier. Suffering the vengeance of what kind of fire? Eternal. Is Sodom and Gomorrah burning today? No, but go out there and see if you can find it. Sodom and Gomorrah is gone. It was obliterated. It looks like a, a lunar landscape. Yeah, that fire did its job, and there's nothing left. That's the point here. Take a look at question number 15. When Revelation 20.10 states that the wicked will be tormented forever and ever, doesn't that indicate endless time? You know, people get tr- uh, uh, caught up on this one. Let's take a look at, uh, at that verse. Why don't you, let's open our Bibles, <clears throat> and let's turn to Revelation 20. And because uh, we, we get asked this question, you'll be asked this question, and you may have this question tonight. Revelation 20 and um, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. Okay. So does, 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 doesn't that mean indicate endless time? Let's take a look at Jonah 2.6 and see what the Hebrew writer meant. The earth with her bar... This is a story of Jonah when he was swallowed by the whale. And it says, The earth and her bars was about me how long? Was Jonah in the belly of a whale forever? Is he still out there today somewhere in the ocean? No. Um, now... If you were swallowed by a whale, it would seem like forever, I would think. But it wasn't. In fact, just recently, somebody did get swallowed by a whale. That was in the paper, so it does happen. I'm sure he felt like he was in there forever, too. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, it's not just the Hebrews that do this. We Americans do this. I want, be honest with me, how many of you have ever told someone that you are in line forever? Yeah, well, you're not because you're here. So, obviously, you weren't in line forever, but we, we just mean for, it was way longer than I wanted to be there, is what we're trying to communicate. And, and so that is what's being uh, communicated here as well. It wasn't forever and ever. And let's take a look. Basically, it's the same idea as, as fire. It, it's basically saying, I was there as long as the conditions were met. And uh, take a look, and we'll see this fleshed out a little bit. Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21. And uh, this is an interesting um, section of Scripture. God's giving directives to His people how they should uh, live life, uh, their society. And uh, you know that uh, a Hebrew could, could only be a slave for so many years. Uh, I think it was six years. On the seventh year, had to be, if I remember correctly, had to be released. And... Um, <clears throat> But if the Hebrew slave really liked his master, if he'd gotten married and he had kids and he didn't want to leave, then there was a ceremony 
that they would go through that would indicate that he had made the decision to stay with his master. And it's explained here in verse 6. But this master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve, he shall serve him how long? Forever. So does this mean that once we get to heaven that this person is still going to be a slave? No. It's referring to as long as life shall last, as long as he lives, okay, until the condition is met. Once he's died, he's released. We'll see this again. Open your Bibles to the book of Samuel. Let's turn to 1 Samuel. So we'll go in the other way after the book of, oh, before the, after the book of... Judges. All right, Samuel chapter 1. You remember the story? Uh, little uh, Miss Hannah wanted a, a child and she didn't have a child. And uh, she went to the temple and asked God for a child. And then she, later she did get pregnant. And um, let's take a look here. Um, and, and so as the child was, was being raised, her husband would often go to the, uh, Elkanah would go to the, the tabernacle, but Hannah didn't go. She wanted to wait until her son was weaned. And so we look at this at verse 22. Remember, she promised him to the Lord, right? But Hannah did not go up, verse 22, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there how long? Forever, okay? Are we watching how the Bible uses the word? Um, now, uh, is Samuel in, is still out there today? No. Let's turn the page and look at the end of that chapter, verse 28, and here Hannah fleshes out what she meant. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. That's what that meant. You remember, we have to be detectives if we want to understand the Bible we have to be detectives. Remember I talked yesterday, if you're going to put up a fence and you see one or two poles out, you have to bring them back to line up with the others. The weight of the evidence in Scripture is that the wicked will be destroyed at the end. Ashes, perish, burned up. That's the picture. It's not eternal burning that is pictured in Scripture. Number 14. Oh, wait, not 14, 16. After sin and sinners are destroyed, what will Jesus do for his people? 2 Peter 3.13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new what? Heavens and a new earth in which the righteousness dwells. And we talked about that. That's what's going to happen at the end of a thousand years when the wicked are destroyed. God is going to reproduce the earth. And then what? Revelation 21.4 says, And God will wipe away how many tears? Every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I look forward to that, don't you? Well, my friends, I, I don't think we have the, uh, that much of a wait. I believe the Lord is coming soon. And then uh, question 17. Will the sin problem ever rise again? Nahum, uh, Nahum 1.9. Affliction will what? Not rise up a second time. You know why? Because the universe would have been vaccinated. <laughs> inoculated sorry they would have they would have the, the universe would have known now what sin is and what it's about and they would also be convinced now that God really is love there is no reason to rebel against love that's insanity to do that 
And, uh, and so it won't rise up a second time. So for all eternity, it will be a happy place. There'll be no more discord in the universe. Question 18. What penetrating question does Job ask? And Job 4.17, he asks this question. Can a mortal be more what? Righteous than God. I mean, you, there isn't a human being out there who would torture another human being forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, no matter what crime he committed. Isn't that true? And, uh, so, and, and that, that this is passed off on the Lord is awful. It is awful. God is not that way, not at all. So here is your response to Jesus. Jesus wants you to dwell with him in his glorious new kingdom, occupying the mansions he has prepared for you. Won't you accept his offer? Yeah. And you know, love never forces. Love does not um, pressure or intimidate Um, Love never does that. Love invites, and it leaves us with a choice. How many want to be there with the Lord? Amen. Let's close out with prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the Bible teaching that you have laid out for us to help us understand what really happens to the lost at the end. Lord, you would be happy to take them to heaven, but they don't want to be there. It would be torture for them. They have bent their minds, the wicked have bent their minds to rebel against you. And, and, And they have disqualified themselves from ever being able to live in a peaceful, harmonious, joyful place like heaven. And so the only other thing left to do in love is to put them down so that they don't suffer forever and ever under the power of the devil. We're so thankful, Father, that you appeal to our reasoning ability, that your blood can wash away the darkest stain of sin that no matter how far we have fallen, you can reach down deeper still to reclaim us and recover us from sin. No one needs to be lost. The fires of destruction were never meant for the human family. It was for their arch rebel and his group, but not for the human family. And I just pray, Father, help us to get such a picture of you, to recognize your arms of love. No matter what we have done, you are willing to wash it away and to give us life anew to transform us. We thank you for that. We praise you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.